I've been doing a collection of talks about joy, the violent protests of joy. And you know, here's the thing that we've been saying for the last few weeks is that joy is never gonna come to you through things that this world does to you or gives to you. Listen, happiness can come through earthly things, but joy can't come from earthly things. In fact, the circumstances that are around you are gonna give you every reason in the world not to have joy in this life. But God has a plan for you. As his child, his plan is that you would be whole, and as a result of that wholeness, your life would literally have a word that describes your state of being. You know what that word is? Joy. That that would be the defining nature of his children. That's his plan for you. But, but the problem is, is that we have a really hard time grasping this concept because we look at what's happening to us and around us, and we look at that to determine our emotional state of being. And as long as our emotional state of being is determined by what this world is doing or what is happening in this world around us, we'll never have joy. And so what I've been saying over the last few weeks is I've been teaching you how to break up with your circumstances so that you can be ruled by something higher and unshakable. That is the true source of joy. All right, so we're on a journey towards joy. Who wants to go there? Come on. The more you're into it, the more you're gonna get out of it. All right, Luke chapter three. Jesus is at the very beginning of doing his public ministry. And before he's preached one sermon or before he has done one miracle, he first goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist, which you know is kind of interesting because he didn't really need to get baptized, but he did it to set a pattern for us. But something really amazing happened when he got baptized. It says, uh, Luke chapter three, verse 21, all the people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened up. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Older translations say, this is my beloved son. And so you have this incredible affirmation of the father saying to Jesus in an obvious way, this is who you are. And it's important for us to understand that before Jesus did anything, the father first told him who he was. Because for us, we're not able to fulfill what we were created to be until we first understand who we are in our father's eyes. If we don't know who we are in his eyes, we will stumble through life. And so before Jesus did anything, God first made sure that you understood, that he understood, this is my son whom I love, and him I am well pleased. How awesome. And a lot of you are struggling. You're struggling every day with your emotional state, and joy feels like a million miles away. And it's because you struggle every day with knowing who you are. That you doubt what God thinks about you. You doubt what God feels about you. You know how I know that? Because I do. I doubt it. Well, maybe God's disappointed with me today. Maybe God's ashamed of me today. Maybe God's not really gonna bless me today. Maybe he doesn't really want to. And we have all the reasons in our mind why to believe that. But notice that before Jesus did anything, before he had a chance to prove himself, before he had a chance to show off 
It started with this is my son whom I love and him I am well pleased. And if we can build our lives on the revelation of that identity, then we can truly be whole people, strong people, overcoming people. All right, I gotta, I gotta preach this thing. I gotta keep going. The very next thing that happens after this, chapter four, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, as you would be if that happened to you, left the Jordan River where he was baptized. And listen to this. And was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. Could be translated desert. In the Greek, that word means desolate place, abandoned place. It's a place where no life exists because no life can exist. The Spirit took him there where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days and at the end of them, he was hungry. <laughs> yeah, that's like the understatement of the year. He didn't eat for 40 days and he was like, I don't eat for four hours. <laughs> and, and, I, and I consider, I consider going to Sheets. <laughs> Here's what I hate about that. What I hate about that is that Jesus ended up in the desert because God led him there. And that messes with my theology. How could a good God want me in the desert? But yet, God leads Jesus to the desert. And I'm gonna tell you, he'll lead you to the desert sometimes too. And we're like, why? Like, why would God be so mean? He's not being mean to you. See, there are some things that you will never develop, some things you will never learn until you've been to a place where you had to learn them. Until you've been to a place where you had no other options but to learn them. And the desert is an isolated place. It is a fruitless place. It is a rough place. And I know that a lot of us can relate to this because I bet every single person here and watching online, every single person has said at one point in their life, I do not like where I am right now. Like, I don't like this whole place that I'm living in right now. I don't like the house I'm living in. Or I don't like the job that I have. Or I don't like my relationship status. I don't like where I am right now. And the funny thing is, is that God wasn't afraid of taking Jesus to a place where he wasn't gonna like. Maybe like, well, why is God, is God mean? Is he big meanie? No, the desert doesn't mean that God likes it when you suffer. It is to develop you to be stronger than suffering. See, he takes you to the desert, not because he's mad at you. He takes you to the, de the desert because he has mercy on you. He takes you to the desert to develop you, to strengthen you, to work something into you. And so I wanna preach this message because I wanna tell you that no matter where you find yourself in life today, there's joy available to you. But you have to learn that the desert is not your enemy. The desert can be your friend. I, I, I was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, with my oldest son, Danielle, in Phoenix. Anyone ever been to the desert? It's it actually beautiful. It was hot. It was dry. There is no grass. No grass. And after being in Pittsburgh, where it rains every day, it was kind of nice. But you know what? Everywhere that we went, we were no more than about a 10-minute walk from air conditioning, and we had bottles of water that were with us every single place that we went. 
And then we slept in an air-conditioned hotel room, and there was a pool that we could hang out with shade. It was awesome. I like this desert. This is not the desert Jesus was in. There was no air conditioning. There was no shade. There was no pool. There was no bottles of water. Nothing. And sometimes that's where we end up in life, right? It feels like that. I was, I'm going to tell your story again. All right. I was talking to T.A. this morning. She told me I could tell the story. And it was, it was a number of months ago. T.A., by the way, is our servant leader in charge of front of house teams at the 6 o'clock city service. She's amazing. I was talking to T.A., and um, she was, you know, maybe six months ago or something like that, she came up to me after church, and she was so upset. And uh, something had just happened at her job where she had to be transferred to this other boss and this other place, and she ended up in a situation at work where she literally hated going to work every day of her life. And she said to me, I can't handle it. I don't wanna, I don't wanna get up. I don't wanna go. But there was a hope that another job, the job that she really wanted, would become available once another lady retired. But it was unclear when this was gonna happen. And so she had to go to work every day in this place where it's like, I hate it where I'm, where I'm at. And every day, I would see her, you know, she'd tell me it was not great. <laughs> and she was honest this morning. She was like, I did, I did not keep my peace through that, Right? And so it was a rough season. It was like a I don't want to be here season. And it went on not for a week or two weeks, but for months and months. Well, this week, one of our um, small group coordinators called her and said, hey, I want you to teach a small group about God in the workplace. And she's like, God in the workplace? I was like, let me tell you where God's at in my workplace. (laughs) But she went and she taught it. And let me tell you, she wouldn't have been able to teach what she taught if she hadn't been in the desert for six months. And she went and she taught it. The next day on Friday, her company contacts her. Not only is the job that she wants now available and open to her, but a second job that she would also love to have is also available to her. She got options, baby. She got options. And and I want to tell you that it's great when you get to the end of the story, but it is not so great when you're navigating the desert. And we are going to find ourselves in the desert place. We all sitting here today know how the story of Jesus ends. We know that he's going to go to the cross. It's going to be really bad. Silent Saturday is going to be really hard, but we're not too worried about it. Because we know what happens on Sunday morning. That he comes out of the grave and he's raised to life and he offers new life to anyone who believes in him. Come on. But the truth is is that the road to resurrection went through the desert. And if you want to live in new life, resurrection life, the kind of joy that Jesus has for you, I'm going to tell you that the way to joy goes through the desert. It goes through the desert. Why? Well, let me, let me go back to the word and talk to you about what happened in the desert, okay? So the devil is beating Jesus over the head. And he says to him, if you are the son of God, because guess where the enemy's always gonna start? With your identity. 
Jesus literally just heard God Almighty say, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And what does the enemy do? First thing out of his mouth, if you really are the son of God. Notice he left a word out. God didn't say, this is my son. God said, this is my beloved son. But the enemy doesn't include the word beloved in the attack. You know why? Because if he reminds us that we are the beloved of God, it will undermine the enemy's ability to touch us. If you are the son of God, and here's what he says, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. Interesting to note that the enemy said that all of the kingdoms of the earth were under his authority. That is true. Also, we have been given authority over the enemy because of the resurrection of Jesus. That is also true. Jesus says, it is written, because he quotes the word, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, oh, because the attack about your identity keeps coming. It, it's not a one and done thing. It's always gonna be there. It's always gonna be the attack on your identity. If he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and now the enemy is quoting scripture. He quotes Psalm 91 and says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so the enemy is saying, well, here's what God promised you. Why don't you prove it? Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Three different temptations that the enemy comes at Jesus with. And here's why we need to know what these mean. Because these are the same struggles that you and I are gonna have to face as we navigate the desert seasons of our life. But if we navigate these struggles and these temptations, we will come out on the other side with the resurrection power and the joy that you were created for. And so the first thing that, this, that Satan says is why don't you turn this stone into bread? Which makes a lot of sense and doesn't seem that harmful, right? Like, you have not eaten for 40 days. It's like, you clearly could turn that stone into bread, and we all know that Jesus could, and what's the harm in that? He's hungry. He could turn it into bread if he wanted to. But you know what this represents? Temporary relief. Because Jesus could have done that, and what would have happened? His stomach would have been filled for about five minutes, and man, would that five minutes have been awesome. Would have felt great. But in the process, he would have lost the purpose. Our little girl, London, she, was, she actually had her birthday this week. Nine years old. I know. So cool. Um, when she, she was two and a half when we adopted her from an orphanage. And guys, it was really hard because this girl would not sleep. Not only would she not sleep, but she would scream bloody murder all night long. It was awful, and, and we were desperate because like we were exhausted, she was exhausted, but nothing would get her to sleep. Like We did all of the tricks, and it was not working, 
And so finally we realized after some experimentation that if we gave her like the full dose of children's Tylenol, that it would calm her down for a little bit and she'd fall asleep. But we'd have to keep giving her Tylenol because the moment it wore off, she'd start screaming again. But if we just kept that up during the night, she would sleep. And so, you know, we found some relief. Like, it, it, was, it was okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. It was manageable. A few months in, the doctors realized what was really going on in her body. We didn't know this at the time, but she didn't have the ability to release her bladder. And so pee was backing up into her kidneys, causing her kidneys to go into severe unhealth. And the doctor said, this will lead quickly to kidney failure which is fatal. Now, luckily, they had a plan, and it was a multi-year process with multiple surgeries along the way, but today, she's fine. She sleeps great. She has the ability to control her bladder. It's a little bit of a man-made way, but it totally works. But the problem is, what if we had just accepted that Tylenol gave us enough relief that we didn't have to pursue the problem any further? And if we had relied on the Tylenol, we would have had relief through the night, every night. But you know what would have happened if we had done that? She would be dead today. And this is the enemy's game that he wants to play with you. He wants to offer you ways of getting temporary relief. And you are primed, especially in our society today, that values comfort above everything else. We are primed in this world to go to the things that offer us temporary relief. And the enemy knows that as long as he can get you hooked on temporary relief agents, you will never address the real root cause of the pain that you're in. And if you don't address the root cause of the pain, you'll never heal, you'll never be whole, and you'll never land in joy. And so what does he do? He gives you options. You don't have to deal with the wounds in your heart. All you have to do is get attention from guys. You, you don't have to deal with the stuff that makes you unhappy in life. All you have to do is drink. All you have to do is take the whatever. And so God takes us into the desert. And what is the desert? A place of deprivation where there ain't no Tylenol. And the reason why the desert sucks so bad is that I don't have my Tylenol anymore. And I feel all the pain. And I'm looking up at God saying, if you really loved me, you wouldn't let me have pain. And God says, I really love you, which is why you're feeling pain. Because the pain is highlighting the parts of your heart that haven't healed yet. The only way to get to joy is to be deprived of the other things that I'm relying on to satisfy me. But many of us won't stick it out in the desert. The moment the Tylenol's gone, we're bailing so hard. You know why? We don't want pain. Everyone in this world's like, yeah, no pain. You shouldn't have pain in your life. Do you know what? Do you know what is better than having temporary relief from pain, being whole. But it's a longer process, and it's a longer journey. Do you know what? The surgeries that we went through with London, it was no ride in the park. 
It was hard and it lasted a long time, but it was necessary for her to be well. John chapter 15, Jesus tells us this parable. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. It's like, if you're connected to me, I'll supply everything that you need to be fruitful in life. My father is the gardener. And then listen to this. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. I am not a gardener. I kill everything I plant. But what I know from this parable is that if you've got a rose bush and it has branches on it that are not producing roses, you've got to cut them off because they will suck dry the energy from the plant so that the, the branches that are healthy won't have much to produce either. And you won't have many roses on your bush. It'll be like a stupid little, you know, Charlie Brown tree or something. But I also know that the branches that do produce roses also have to be trimmed back if you want a lot of roses. Okay, so here's the point. God will take you to places where he cuts things off of your life. And do you know why? Because you were designed to be fruitful. But a lot of us start freaking out when God starts highlighting issues in our life that we don't want him to deal with. That's why at the beginning of every service, I'll lead you in a prayer so that you give God permission to deal with what needs to be dealt with. Because he won't do it if you don't give him permission. But I also know that if you actually mean those words, that God will come in and he will deal with the things that need to be dealt with. And on the other side of it, you'll be fruitful and free. Right? But the crazy thing about that verse is that the branches that don't produce fruit get pruned. And then he says, and the branches that do produce fruit get pruned. Either way, you're getting pruned. You got things going on in your life that are awesome, you'll get pruned. You ain't got anything going on in your life that'll be awesome, you'll get pruned. And you might be like, God's so mean. No, no, no. God loves you. He's for you. Don't resist. Don't resist the times where he weans you off of the things that you've been relying on other than him. Because I know a lot of believers who, who resist that whole process and year after year after year, it's like, yeah, my life just kind of sucks. It doesn't really get better. And they never make progress. And they hear a message about joy and they feel all this guilt. Like, joy? I'm hanging on by a thread every day of my life. And the reason why is because you, you have resisted the process that God wanted to take you through in order to make you who you were made to be. Because the process doesn't always feel good but it is necessary in order to be whole. So in the desert, we're deprived of things so that we learn how to rely on the one thing that can really make us who we were made to be. So the desert teaches me how to stop drinking from polluted wells. And you know why? Because there ain't no wells in the desert. You ain't got no options. So you learn that you can survive without them. All right, second temptation, it's interesting. Satan says, look at all of the kingdoms of the earth. I will give you authority over all of them. Now, this is really interesting because when Jesus starts teaching, what he says over and over and over again is that he came to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. And so Satan says, all of the kingdoms of the world, I'll give them to you right now. 
And what Satan is offering Jesus is actually the very thing that Jesus came to accomplish. And you're like, well, how is that a bad thing? This is all of Jesus' hopes and dreams. This is the fulfillment of his purpose. Very truly the fulfillment of his purpose. And Satan says, I'll give it to you all right now. And do you know why? Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut around the cross. I'll give it to you and you won't have to go to the cross. And we'll just call it a done deal. Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut. The truth is, there are no shortcuts to wholeness. There are no shortcuts to joy. There's no shortcut to a healthy marriage. There is no shortcut to a healthy body. There is no shortcut to a healthy emotional state of being, which is why we rely on painkillers instead of leaning into the process. But wholeness is not instant. It takes a process. Here's why I'm telling you this, because I know that this is not a feel-good message right now. Here's why I'm telling you this, because you're gonna go through the process. And if you don't understand what God's intentions are, you won't make it through the process. Think about Joshua. Do you remember Joshua? He was leading the Israelite people out of Egypt and into the promised land where God um, promised them security and prosperity and everything that you could hope for. And so Joshua takes the people across the river into the promised land. And does anyone remember the very first battle that they have in the promised land? Because the promised land wasn't free. It was occupied territory. And they had to defeat some enemies in order to take hold of the promise. The first enemy was a big walled city called Jericho. Remember this story? This was a great story. This is awesome. All they had to do was march around that city and then shout. And what happened? The walls fell down. How good is that? Here's how you're gonna have victory. You're just gonna go to church, you're gonna shout, and there's gonna be victory. And I'm gonna tell you, God absolutely works like that sometimes. God will in an instant give you a breakthrough. In an instant, he will make you a healed, you know, he will heal you from something. In an instant, he is able to do that just like he did it in Jericho. And I also wanna tell you that God will operate a lot like that, especially for new believers, so that you understand how good he is. But here's the secret about Jericho. Jericho wasn't the only battle that they were gonna have to fight. Because there was another place right after Jericho, go ahead and put it on the screen, another king called the king of Ai. And the shouting didn't work in Ai. They actually had to fight. Oh, and then after Ai was Jerusalem, and then Hebron, and then Jarmuth, and then Lashish, and then Eglon, and then Gezer, and then Debir. And it goes on like this, on and on and on and on and on. Do you know how many cities and kings they had to defeat? 31. The shouting worked on the first one. The other 30 took a fight. Because wholeness doesn't come in an instant. It is a process. And Joshua fights 31 kings. And then at the end of 31 victories, he stops fighting. And even then, the battle hasn't been won. They, they had won enough territory for them to occupy most of the land. 
and they stopped fighting. And for hundreds of years, the people of Israel were in constant battles every year against the enemies that Joshua did not defeat. And they would besiege them, and they would starve them, and they would make them hide in caves. And then some years, the Israelites would push back, and they'd be a little bit stronger, and they would you know, do the same thing to the enemy. Hundreds of years of this, until finally King David comes on the scene, and he says, enough! And he defeats the Philistines, and for the first time, provides security to the borders of Israel. I don't want to be a Joshua when I could be a David. I don't want to be someone who settles for half victories when I could walk in the fullness of what God promised me. I don't want to be someone who gets tired out after king number two or three or four. I want to be the kind of person that says, I'm going to take all the cities. It might take the rest of my life, but I'm taking all the cities. And I'm going to be whole, and I'm going to walk in what God has promised me. So... So the question for us in the desert is this, where is the occupied territory in your heart? Because God wants to deal with that. Oh, but, but he'll give you victory there. You just have to have the guts to face it. But we got a battle for the condition of our heart. We got a battle for our wholeness. And, and the more that you're at church and the longer that you're a Christian, the harder this gets. Because you're like, oh yeah, I had a lot of struggles when I first got saved. And God's like, nah, you still got a lot of struggles. Like, you wanna go on a journey? <laughs> and you're like, no. Like, I already have what I want. How many people, oh my gosh, I've seen this. How many people stop, stop working on their emotional health when they get married? It's like, well, I was only doing that so I'd catch him. Now that I have him, it's all good, you know? <laughs> right? Okay, Jeremiah gives us a beautiful promise. This is one that you should post in your cubicle. Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? <laughs> no one has this posted in their cubicle. This is terrible. What an awful verse. But here's the truth in the verse. The truth is that you have a capacity to lie to yourself about the battles that you don't want to fight. You have the capacity to say, I got 31 kings under my belt and that's enough. There ain't no more kings. And God's like, you know that there are more kings. You're like, I don't see the kings. And he's like, they're destroying your finances. And you're like, every week I come and I'm like, God save me from my money. And God's like, you need to learn how to manage your money. And you're like, no, that's not the problem. Like, it's the problem. And it's like, I can't tithe. Oh, you're gonna let that king remain? Yeah. So you can lie to yourself and be like, it ain't an issue. It's not a problem. I don't have that problem. But here's the promise of God in light of the deceitful heart that you and I have. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and I will give you a tender and responsive heart. The promise of God that if we'd let him do it, he'll transform our heart so that we're honest and soft in his hands and able to be molded by the, the, the caring hands of our good father. And so what do you do when you know that you've got occupied territory in your heart? What do you do? Well, you don't look for the shortcut. 
But here's what you do. I love Zerubbabel says this in Zechariah 4 verse 7. That is an awesome name. Zerubbabel looks at the enemy and he calls the enemy a mountain. And he says, who are you, oh great mountain? Who are you, oh great anxiety? Who are you, oh great depression? Who are you, oh great lack? Who are you, oh great addiction? Before me, you will become a flat plain and God will bring forth the finishing work with shouts of grace, grace to it. What does that mean? It means that there is grace for you to have victory over every occupied area of your heart. Because the same grace that brought the walls down in Jericho is with you for king number nine and king number 15. And it might not look the same and the walls might not come down the same way, but the same power that caused the walls to fall down on the first battle will give you victory over king 31 and 32 and 34 and 37 and 82. He'll give you the victory, but it's not in your power. It's in the grace of God. And so you look at the parts of your heart that are occupied territory and you say you will not rule my life grace grace to it the grace of God is greater than you the grace of God has the power to overcome you the grace of God offers me healing the desert exposes where I still need healing I learn it in the desert I learn it in the desert because the, de the desert's the place where you have to learn it. All right, the third temptation. Weird, the enemy takes him up to the top of the temple and says, did God really say that he was gonna care for you? I mean, I heard him tell you. Let's try it out. Jump off this thing and see if God's actually gonna be true to his word. Angels are gonna come and prevent you from falling Psalm 91, all right, let's see if it works. And do you know what this whole temptation is about? It's about getting you to doubt how God really feels about you and whether or not God will really come through for you. And Jesus responds and he says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. I love that. Because the whole thing was, if you jump off this thing, God promised angels to care for you. And Jesus says, I'm gonna trust him even when I can't see the results of my trust. I'm gonna trust him even when I don't have the evidence I'm looking for. And it was after he made that choice that the angels showed up and said, we're gonna take care of you just like your father said that we would. Will you believe him when you have evidence to convince you that he's not believable? Will you trust him when it feels like the desert has given you proof that your father will lead you to a dry place? Will you still believe him when it feels like you can't access what you need? Will you trust him on Silent Saturday when it feels like the very thing he promised you ain't gonna happen? Will you trust him there? That's the third temptation. It's a hard one. But it's in the desert 
where the doubts that I have about my identity as a beloved son get worked out. The truth is, is that I don't learn, I haven't learned who I really am until I was put in situations where I had to learn who I really am. I didn't know the strength I had until I was placed in situations where I had to be strong or I was gonna die. I didn't learn the faithfulness of God until I was in a situation where without the faithfulness of God, I wasn't gonna make it. You learn who you are in the desert because the desert teaches you who you really are. So if you're in the desert today, I want to tell you, don't give up. And don't stop believing the truth about who God is. Because the desert season will end. But the desert season is necessary. The desert season is necessary. So Jesus, worship team, you can come on up. So Jesus uh, does three years from this point of ministry. Actually, it says that after Jesus finally told Satan to go bite it, that um, he left that desert full of the Holy Spirit's power and went back into Galilee and started doing signs and wonders and miracles. Because you come out of the desert with power. You come out of the desert knowing the power of the grace of God. You come out of the desert relying on the Holy Spirit more than you rely on yourself. TA, you're coming out of this season and you're gonna be a better person than you were before this season. And that's the promise of God about the desert season. You, yeah, so, so Jesus, he, he does three years of ministry and he turns the world upside down. And it all comes to a head when finally he is so famous that he enters the city of Jerusalem and the entire Jewish world is waiting for him to overthrow the Romans and restore peace to Israel. And so he goes into the city that day and there, and it's a big festival, it's the Passover feast, it's a massive deal. And he goes into the city and the whole city on the first day of the week is like, Jesus is gonna do it. He's gonna do it. He's gonna save us. And they run out and they get palm branches and they start waving them around saying Hosanna, which means he's gonna save us. And he comes into the city and they're praising God, letting him into their city. Beautiful, huh? But they didn't know what God's saving power would look like. They didn't know. They didn't know that he wasn't gonna kick out Pontius Pilate and overthrow Caesar. They didn't know that that Friday night, this saving God would die on a cross. They didn't know on Saturday that it would feel like God was silent because he had been crushed by the evil of this world. They didn't know, which is why the same crowd that shouted Hosanna were the same people that shouted crucify him on Friday. They didn't know. Oh man, but did he come to save us? But his salvation was so much more than we thought it was, which is why sometimes the desert sucks because you think that God ain't giving you what you've been praying for. And God's like, hang on. What you've been praying for is nothing compared to what I actually want to do. Hang on. Because you know what's better than overthrowing Caesar? Overthrowing sin and Satan and the brokenness of humanity. Do you know what's better than overthrowing Pontius Pilate? Overthrowing death. <laughs> Come on. 
hang on till the resurrection. So why did they wave palm branches? Oh, because that was symbolic. In that culture, a palm branch always represented victory. But you know why it represents victory? It's not for an easy reason or a pretty reason. See, a palm branch grows on a tree, the only tree that is fruitful and full of life and full of vitality in the desert place. Palm branch represents victory because the palm branch says, I went through the desert, but I came out healthy on the other side. I went through the desert, but I came out fruitful on the other side. I went through the desert, but I came out full of life on the other side. And I want to tell you that if you're in the desert season tonight, that it is time to wave your palm branch and say, even if I'm in a dry place, God is still with me there. Even if I'm in a desolate place, God is still with me there. He is victorious. He's greater than the desert, and he's going to see me through. 